0: probably heard the federal government's finalising a tracing app right now the idea is that if we download it that if we or someone we've come into close contact with test positive for COVID-19 it makes it easier to prevent a cluster of infections because they can kind of track us down Um, the government's hope is that enough of us will download it so that authorities can start lifting the restrictions around our movements as soon as possible and it's um, very unlikely, though, that four in 10 of us will download it, which is the target number. So is it just a bad idea for Australia or is there some merit here and what might happen? Dr Sulet Dreyfus is a repeat guest on The Grapevine. She's a lecturer in the School of Computing and Information Systems over at the University of Melbourne. And it's uh, great to have you with us, Sulette. Lovely to be here this morning. Thanks. And so people might have heard bits and pieces about this idea. It's been in the the papers over the weekend. We've heard the Prime Minister talking about it. What do we know specifically um, so far about what's in store?
2: Well, we don't know as much as we would like. (laughs) So uh, we believe it's based on uh, Singapore's Trace Together app um, and that it would be using Bluetooth connections, which... Um, can tell whether two people are within a few meters of each other without necessarily recording exactly where they are locationally. But there are concerns about what the structure would be, and in fact, there are also concerns about how heavy-handed the approach will government will be with it. So we know that uh, Scott Morrison had to backpedal uh, in the last couple days as to whether or not he would make the app mandatory on people's phones. Um, having said, he you know strongly wanted Australians to embrace it and then kind of um, implied a threat that we would have to download it um, if we didn't get to his target of 40% uptake. We know that Singapore, I think, has had something like 20% or less uptake on a voluntary basis. Um, I would have thought that Australians would be less likely to get to 40%. So he's backtracked and said, no, 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 the app will only be voluntary. Now, the issue with the app uh, is that there are sort of two basic baskets of approaches, two approaches you could use um, when you're dealing with a Bluetooth app. One is centralized, has a central authority, and one is decentralized. The option that it looks like they're going for, but of course you don't have a lot of detail, Um, is a centralized authority. And in that, um, if you, if Kelly and I are in the supermarket at the same time together in proximity, uh, and our Bluetooth is on, uh, then we will send each other some random number-looking codes. And at a later date, um, if I test positive, um, then in a centralized app, um, I will upload every beacon I've received. So in other words, I would say here is the random-looking number list which um, identifies all the contacts I've been in proximity to. And then the government or the essential authority would identify them and contact the people. In the decentralized model, Instead of um, sending a list of all of the beacons you've received, you send a list of all the beacons you sent. So if you imagine an old-style, you know, cork board, uh, announcement board outside in front of a primary school where you go up and you tack a notice with a thumbtack, each day you might post, or it would be more frequent than that, but you might post a list, um, if you've been testing positive, uh, of all the codes that you sent out and then Kalia's uh, device will come and automatically scan that list and see, oh, boom, I recognize that code. I've been in proximity to that person. So that decentralized model uh, is better for privacy. It, in In a general sense, it means that you don't, have to upload to government your contact list. And I need to just make clear when I say contact list, I don't mean the list of all the contacts in your phone. What I mean is the people who you may have come into proximity area with um, uh, as, as a contact on your Bluetooth list. Yep. So so the concern is is that the, uh, the government may be opting for this centralized approach. And we know that there have been questions raised. I mean, yeah, even the idea of implying a threat—we would have to download it—is so heavy-handed. Um, but I, I think that in the wake of my health record, when many people failed to sign up as an opt-in, um, and indeed a number of people chose, million people chose to opt out, I believe. Um, there is not a lot of trust um, that this information that is given might not be. Um, saved, repurposed, used for some other reason, applied to other, compared with other databases in some way. Uh, So there's a bit of concern. If you look at how the track record of the federal government has been to, for example, bring in the metadata retention legislation, which was allegedly for one purpose, just tracking, you know, those extreme terrorists, you know, and, and then it's been accessible by more than 20 agencies and for things well beyond that purpose. Um, so we we have to be very careful about thinking about this. Europe, uh, the European Commission and EU Parliament, the EU member states supported by the Commission, um, recently in the last couple of days released an EU toolbox um, for contact tracing. And the key elements that were sort of top-line essential requirements is that it had to be voluntary, had to be approved by the National Health Authority, and it had to be privacy-preserving, had to be dismantled as soon as it was no longer needed. So the key element there is we're not going to keep your data longer than we need to Um, We're not going to go using it for other purposes. We're going to preserve privacy as much
1: as we can. Yeah, and and there are a range of precedents, some of which you've just run through, that should make us a little bit uneasy about just exactly how robust um, the infrastructure is. I mean, we can also talk about, you know, the the census debacle from a few years ago that raised questions about the ability for, um, you know, the federal government to manage data effectively and, and to manage those processes. But we've heard also, Government Services Minister Stuart Roberts say that this is a Team Australia moment, and we've kind of heard mm-hmm. that language used a little bit um, around the coronavirus Lately, And so essentially the government's saying, you know, you should download and and use this app in good faith um, because there's a broader sort of public health benefit to this. How much information can we expect from the government uh, in, you know, in the next sort of week or, or few weeks to allow us to decide and weigh up the, you know, respective privacy concerns and the broader public health benefit for ourselves?
2: Well, so the government services minister has said that the source code will be made public. That's good. That'll make it much easier for the broader community to know what it's actually doing. Um, it, he said that the Privacy Commissioner will do a privacy impact statement that will be made public. And also that the Australian Signals Directorate and the Australian Cybersecurity Center are, quote, checking the app. Um, we don't know exactly what that means. But also query the fact that, you you know, you just had a high court ruling about the raid by government uh, of journalist Anika Smithers' house, uh, which ruled in her favor on the overall issue, um, that it was based on an incorrect warrant. Uh, uh, And the story she was reporting about how the Australian Signals Directorate was effectively going to be repurposed to spy not on foreign countries, but on our own population. So uh, that raises some concerns about trust. Whether a review would really be something you would necessarily trust in terms of looking after Australians' privacy.
0: And it's really interesting because um, in in the various different technology examples that, that uh, you and Dylan have raised, to let I was also thinking robo debt. Like that's another issue that's come from from government and that goes to to trust. But I I wonder really. I think broadly, we want the same thing, which is to be able to get out of self-isolation and and start to see our lives um, regain freedoms. And technology can play a part. I mean, we are all holding phones, for instance, and we do know how to do this. But is it the, the sense that it's government and the way they're doing it? Would commercial outlets, I mean, people are already giving their data to Apple and Google and others already. Would... Would people be more comfortable with that approach, do you think? Or really, government is best placed to to do something like this if they would get the architecture right and make sure it's more distributed rather than centralised? It's a very good question.
2: Um, so I don't know the answer yet, partially because we need to see the detail of what the government is releasing. Um, Apple and Google, in a sort of unprecedented partnership, um, have agreed to... Um, make the underlying foundations of the software um, available, uh, and they're going to build this in a way that they can restrict who can use it to just health authorities or just um, apps that comply with their requirements. They've already run in head-to-head with the National Health Service, the NHS in the UK, over how much privacy um, it would offer on the apps that, on the app that the NHS is planning for, and, and Apple and Google have said they actually want a higher threshold of privacy. They have promised privacy protection and transparency. Now, of course, there's a little bit of skepticism because these are the Silicon Valley tech giants who not, not, who've taken a lot of our data and not been uh, giving us very much privacy. Um, but I think they, so far in my school, book, have been more transparent. Um, about uh, about what they're planning than the government in Australia has. And the point about this is there's one really critical point. If Scott Morrison is so keen to have us all adopt this app, why wouldn't he choose the most privacy-protecting ar- architecture for it, right? So, you know, why would you choose something that was less privacy-protecting? Because people are only going to trust it if it protects their privacy, and there's a false narrative being put out there. That is, you have to have either COVID-19 protection app or privacy, but you can't have both. Well, that's not entirely true. Obviously, tracking apps are going to have some implications for privacy, but there's a pretty wide spectrum in how privacy-invasive they have to be, and the government should be choosing the least invasive, and it doesn't at this stage seem to be.
1: Sulette so, Dreyfus is with us. She's a lecturer in school in the School of Computing and Information Systems at the University of Melbourne. We're speaking all about the Australian government's proposed COVID-19 tracking app and associated privacy concerns around that. And it seems like there's a really sort of kind of, in a way, bizarre coalition of people raising concerns about this. Um, Sulette, I mean, Barnaby Joyce has said he doesn't feel inclined to download the app. There's civil liberties concerns and privacy um, groups and, and digital rights advocates as well are raising some of similar issues to to those you've just run through. I mean, what are the prospects of this actually being rolled out anywhere near to the extent that the government hopes it will?
2: Um, So I think there's no doubt that they'll uh, take the Singaporean um, government's app, which is now open source. That was a good thing that the Singaporean government did. Um, And they will adapt it for their own uh, purposes. Um, But in terms of uptake, I... I remain doubtful that there'll be the level of uptake that they're expecting. I mean, the Mind Health Record is a really important message. So, I had a conversation at an event um, some time ago with Susan Lay, uh, who had been in a ministry covering health. And, um, and she had said to me that the government had been very disappointed with the level of uptake of Mind Health Record when it was optional. it was an opt-in, and that this was one reason why the government had changed in the second release version of it to opt out, to kind of enforce it on us. And even still, there were a lot of people who opted out. So I think that there that seems to indicate perhaps some apathy, but also some distrust of government on this. And by not choosing the most privacy-enhancing option for COVID tracing, that kind of sends a message. It's not a good message for trust.
0: Well, it's really interesting to hear your thoughts to that, and I think um, what really I'm hearing is that the the track record of government with regards to to data and also uh, transparency and things like this are really playing into this right now, And, and... I would hope that uh, governments are paying attention, that what they do around things like census and and health records and and debt collection and also uh, the the treatment of journalists and whistleblowers and the like do all play together when we're talking about something as important as technology to support um, health and and health, broad public health outcomes. It's just a fascinating area and, yeah, thanks for, for being with us yeah thank you very much for having me on. Uh, Dr. Suett Dreyfus, Lecturer in School of Computing and Information Systems over there at the University of Melbourne, a real source of good sound information and um a, a, a person that's spoken a lot about technology over many, many years now.
1: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: And she's been a community activist for decades and now Hannah Asafiri, head cook and owner of the Moroccan Soup Bar, is doing it again. She's closed a restaurant to the public and is now making around 300, 300 hot meals a day for healthcare workers when they come off shift. And she needs our help, actually, to keep this going, which um, is why she's got a My Cause page called Feed the Frontline. And it's really great to have Hannah back on R. Hello Hello, good morning to you guys. How are you going? Well, we're pretty good. I, actually, we, we're deciding to um, f- frazzle ourselves in here and um, switch things up and do our best for um, isolate, isolation broadcasting and uh, Dylan's hair's gone grey, I think. Just
1: keeping us on our toes, that, that's all. We've been isolated hey. for too long and we're starting to lose our grit. <laughs> Look, I, I,
0: I'm uh,
3: trying my hand at hair cutting my own hair and... You know that's working wonders. I think I might change professions as we go. But well, you can you,
0: you can do anything, Hannah. I'm sure. <laughs> but I'm really interested in this course of action because it's not an easy yeah. time for small business right now. It's certainly no. not easy um, for people in hospitality. Yeah. And uh, but you're kind of you you must have thought things through. And you, what's the the course of action you've decided to take so, with your business?
3: So, look, basically, I mean, really early on, way before we got instructions from government and, and, you know, early on, um, we floundered a little bit as Australia in knowing what to do. We kind of said nothing to see and there was this mixed messaging, Uh, whereas for someone like me, we always get our messaging from factual, accurate sources of knowledge and we were seeing what was unfolding around the world. And the Moroccan super was at the height of being busy when I closed it. It was way before government said close and, and social distancing and those conversations. Um, so I closed it, turned it into a takeaway. And also with that, we were still busy, albeit, you know, with social distancing and understanding basically that the virus is so contagious, it's... Uh, it, It hitches a ride onto anything that's moving, any door handle, any light switch, any person. We, in order to support our community, the women in our employment and keep them out of harm's way, and to ease pressure from the healthcare workers in terms of prevention, it was important, no matter the economic benefit, to shut down. So we shut down the takeaway again. um, I mean, cafes are given permission to operate as a takeaway, but I could not. Um, in understanding the behavior of the violence and taking responsibility for our community's well-being, keep the takeaway open. So we closed our doors and turned all our effort to supporting. um, And, you know, at the time we were told what was coming was the inevitability of the crisis intensifying um, and, you know, what started as social distancing, but we were looking to the patterns unfolding around the world, the intensity of the crisis, and what we thought was we would, our gratitude as Melbournians, we know how to cook and nourish, other countries clap and applaud, some countries serenade them, we wanted to cook for them. And we wanted that to be a community campaign where people just get behind it, we translate their $12.50, which is simply the cost of a meal, into Uh, healthy nourishment and appreciation and that is our way of applauding and
1: appreciating the healthcare workers. And so tell us about about how you kind of began the process of engaging with with healthcare workers and and deciding I guess how you could roll this out to um, you know the right amount of people because there's um, there's there's many healthcare workers of course around the country who'd love to have a feed but how did you choose kind of how to roll this out?
3: Yeah So, um, again, with the coronavirus, we understand transmittability, anything that is moving. So we wanted to keep it local um, and we looked at the local hospitals. But we also needed to, again, in understanding, although it's a commercial kitchen, we had to introduce a whole new protocol of uh, everything from food handling and the added we wear personal protective gear, face masks, we take temperature checks on top of our usual sanitization and cleaning our surfaces, we on top of that go through another process around understanding the COVID behaviour yeah. um, and the traceability within that, there's the social distancing even inside our kitchens uh, so we had to make sure that our support translated not to just, well here's the meals, but that the process is traceable, it's safe, the safest possible, Uh, it's freshly cooked, and the hospitals were local hospitals. And that was the initial conversation we had with uh, the organisers inside the three hospitals. You know, and typically, the other kind of interesting thing for Australia is that we find ourselves... Uh, thinking about the crisis as a theoretical problem, you know, it's like, oh yeah, well we averted it. Maybe we did, and we are so lucky in that way. Yet the entire social system around all of us has changed, including healthcare workers and hospitals. So their local cafe, their local support service, their local food uh, places are all shut down. How do we still? And we're asking them to gear up and be on the front line in anticipation. So whilst it's a good thing. They still need our support.
0: That's interesting Um, um, because I was wondering about that, Hannah, with with regards to which, you know, hospitals or or health centres we can support in the way that you are and provide food to people that are working, whether they were then, you know, Diverting their custom from their normal places, but if their normal places aren't open and That's not right. and not providing meals, and then obviously they need to be packing them from home or whatever or getting them in another way. So this is kind yeah. of a, a gap fill as well because it, it is a tricky time. I think mm. to, to work out where and, yeah. where. Um, and, yeah.
3: Yeah, and people have been great. I mean, when we put the call out, initially the anticipation was that this is coming and this is terrible and there was a natural relationship, whereas now it's a bit harder to sustain a campaign because you have to see... Uh, what you can't see in isolation, you have to see that they are still all operating. We've put them on call, almost like an army, and we've put them on the front line, and we've gone to them, your shifts have to change. They are almost, in terms of time poor, they are working up to 12-hour shifts. They're retraining for handling disaster, um, and all their natural local support system um is not available, uh, and food being one of those things. Now, the other problem, I guess, with understanding the virus and its behaviour, I mean, people are even saying that it moves on, and these are facts, through Uber, people are contained, you know, that that is a contagion. So we don't use even Uberies or deliveries willy-nilly. We have the same car that gets sanitised, that is the same driver who delivers, whose temperature gets checked. So there are all these checks and balances to make sure that we are in this lucky um, predicament that we're in, notwithstanding the fact that most of us are still struggling with... How the world has come to this
0: pause? Yeah, and I think so, a lot of these. I mean, a lot of delivery companies, and I know that I'm. You know, we're we're having to buy things more online, aren't we? In most households, are yeah. are pretty amazing now with how they're dealing with transmission of goods. You can see them wiping things down, and and it is a very yeah. interesting time. Yeah. Like even postal services or courier companies or food delivery yeah. or whatever, having to yeah. use new and different practices that are up well, to you speed. Have to. You have
3: to. And look our role in community it's the responsible thing to do and these are um, in a crisis it 's when our convictions are tested in um, it 's not when things are easy and and the crisis can't we didn't ask for it but it is this is our natural um, know how to exist in these places and as women I think um, I won't politicise it, but I'll just talk a little bit about the opportunity in this crisis to lean on the women in our lives who know how to heal. We heal the sick at home. We heal societies when there's division and fracture. And uh, we heal through pandemics and wars. And it's not to say it's biological. It is something we know how to do and has not necessarily been valued and this is this is a time to recalibrate and look to respecting the contribution of women i think Um, and this is a small tiny way of navigating those spaces in a way that for us isn't a major leap it's it's a natural affiliation with our values
1: we're speaking with hannah asafiri the proprietor of moroccan soup bar and moroccan to go all about uh, her initiative to help supply food to healthcare and hospital workers in these times of the global pandemic. And it's really kind of interesting um, in terms of what, uh, I guess, activism or, or doing things mm. for the broader social good looks like in these times. Because if we think yeah. of other, uh, you know, global crises or natural disasters and so on, often it's literally, you know, physically coming together to help pick up the pieces. And that community yeah. building can happen in a very direct and tangible way but at the moment kind of the best thing we can do is self-isolate and and be away from people how do you see i guess community activism and, and solidarity functioning in these times given there's real limitations on how much we can come together
3: mm um So this is precisely one way of translating the goodwill of people and a message from people, cooking it up and delivering it to them. So that is one way. And the other is we send them a direct message every day and maybe we send something new and something um, from, whether it be from a customer who uh, bought something online and put a message across and we send it to them. Um, And we've also opened up our spaces either either through... uh, dropping us a line on our email whilst recognising that at the moment um, the difficulty for a lot of people, because we, we are about social harmony, we are about connectedness, and we're just having to innovate around how do we do connectedness in this modern way, and that is to stay, I think, to stay founded on values and principles that connect all of us together and translating them into practice. People naturally, um, I think, know how to be. And this pause is not necessarily a bad thing, although it is extraordinarily difficult. um, And it is devastating for businesses, I mean, we've had to, everything is ground to a halt. But it's not necessarily only a bad thing. I think it's an opportunity for communities to come out the other end with activating the values that we want, the responsibility, and the leaders of tomorrow uh, will be founded on what they do today. So I think the, the way of the future is to rethink community, to re strengthen community, and to react at a local community level through. Um, all those things that used to be theoretical and now is their time after this pause to reset. I I would hate for us to just snap back as though, and I don't think it's possible anyway, um, to snap back like the world has gone back to the way it was. Yeah, it's an interesting
0: observation. Yeah. and We, and We
3: will be better... Uh, if we choose and together we will be better if we focus on the real stuff that um, which unites us, the adhesion of communities, which are diversity, harmony, social justice, truth telling. And and just before kind of I do waffle sometimes, but I think there's an important element in this whole conversation and that is facts and information and minorities are not receiving accurate information. The general public maybe is, and, and, you know, how lucky are we to live in Victoria? Um, But I think there are groups that have traditionally been vilified and marginalised and treated badly, from asylum seekers to First Nations people to Muslims, who who have not been engaged in a real and meaningful way. So where they're getting their information is through a lot of... um, you know, <laughs> conspiracy theories and all sorts of stuff, which is not necessarily making the message resonate properly. So, these are opportunities for us to examine some of those social divisions and maybe put in place mechanisms to re-engage people in a meaningful way.
0: And before we let you go, uh, Hannah, so at the moment you're, I understand, making around 300 hot meals for hospital and healthcare workers a day and uh, under under the sort of program called Feed Feed the Frontline. Are you looking Mm. to up that or just to keep it going for months? What's the kind of plan? So, um,
3: and again, with uh, COVID-19, it changes uh, like public sentiment changes every hour even, like some hours you've got a whole lot of people behind you and other uh, the next hour people are kind of afraid about their own livelihood and less likely to give. And So we will do it as long as it takes, as long as it needs to be done and we might do it uh, creatively in an interesting way, if and when government gives signal that we it's OK and state of emergency is no longer a reality for Victoria and the situation's contained. So I'm assuming the 11th of May will know more. Um, if that happens, we will open one of the kitchens to the public as a takeaway only um, and we will keep one of the kitchens specifically for hospital staff um, and when I say hospital and medical staff, for as long as it needs and as long as things come back to a relative sense of normality. And um, whether that be you know junior and whether that be I don't know we will just continue to respond and evaluate um, to what's happening and speak to what's happening but mindful all the while that we initially only chose the local hospital St Vincent's public private Royal Melbourne and then the northern hospital approached us and there is a reality in the Northern Hospital being the poorer of those three. And so I couldn't say no. Um, and now we're getting uh, somebody from the Elf reached out to us and now somebody from Mercy. Now, I want to be able to sustain that, but uh, the, all the goodwill in my heart um, also needs resources to sustain it at cost. So I am appealing to, right now, to corporations, to businesses, to um, others who have not been necessarily um, hit hard, to show a bit of heart now and a bit of compassion and support us like we supported them, whether it be supermarkets, super funds, banks, uh, local councils. This is your time to contribute to sustaining this campaign so that we can look after the Northern and Mercy and whoever else. Um, I hope, you know, if you build it, they will come. And we are building it uh, with very few, or if any, resources available
0: to us. But we're and, building and, it. And, and keeping that flexible mind. Thank you so much for joining us. And Thank um, you, guys. And, Please uh, look after yourselves. And likewise. Um, and uh, we'll catch you again soon. Hannah Asafiri, she's over at the Moroccan Soup Bar and talking about the Feed the Frontline um, campaign that she's running and actually... Um, actively providing 300 hot meals a day for healthcare workers and and it sounds like the potential to expand that as well with our support.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.